Well, it's good to be with you this morning again. We're finishing up our third installment of ten on divisiveness in the church. Just kidding. No, actually, this is our third and final week up here. Um, Again, rather than review the first two weeks, again, uh, I'll simply uh, commend the CDs to you. I don't want to uh, spend the time reviewing but uh, again, I just want to repeat what I said last week. There are really three thoughts which we were trying to communicate here, which uh, I want to kind of bring to the forefront of your mind again as we uh, go through this today. Um, number one, that there is an underlying tone of divisiveness throughout the New Testament. And we've been trying to kind of go book by book, big theme, kind of brush across the treetops and just see how that divisiveness is played out in each of the books and why the apostles uh, wrote these books to try to address these issues of divisiveness in particular. So we're, we're kind of doing a big sweep through the New Testament, you know, with the Jews and the Gentiles being thrust together after centuries of enmity with, with false teachers sort of creeping into the church, with, with people's uh, sin issues continuing to hang over. Um, there was just a divisiveness within, within the church of God. Uh, throughout the different fellowships. And so a casual reading, as we said last week, might simply overlook that fact. And what we're really after uh, is the apostles exhorting people to a greater level of unity, uh, one with another, uh, despite their tendencies towards division. Secondly, uh, the church is the dwelling place of the spirit of God. Uh, Christ is the head of the church. The spirit is uh, fills his body, which is the church. Uh, The church must not be divided uh, because neither the spirit nor Christ can be divided. We we said uh, when we looked at first Corinthians chapter one, Paul asked the question, is Christ divided? And the answer is no. Uh, The spirit of God, uh, which indwells his church, should not be divided. The Godhead itself um, represented in the church and to divide the church is to divide the unity of the Godhead. The church is the temple of God. It is the dwelling place of God. Third, along these same lines, sanctification, while it's a a process of growth in an individual believer, it's their relationship with God individually. It always takes place in the context of the body of the church. So your sin issues affect everybody else. Uh, Your sanctification, your personal relationship with Christ plays out in a community of believers. And for you to have sin issues and to bring those to the church affects the body as a whole. And so uh, your individual sin has an effect on the body of the church. Your use of your gifts has an impact on the entire body. There is always a corporate dimension to the process of sanctification. It's an individual between you and God, but it takes place in the church. So uh, today we're just going to cover the last three uh, proven methods uh, of how to split a church. And again, my hope is that you will do just the opposite of what I'm asking you to do. Uh, We have looked uh, so far at nine and I'll just run through those real quick in case you don't have them on your hand out there. Number one, be factious, choose sides. We looked at first Corinthians chapter one. Secondly, abuse your freedom in Christ. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapters 6 through 10. Third, be critical of the leadership and refuse to submit. 2 Corinthians. Fourth, walk in your flesh. Galatians chapter 5. Fifth, 
consider yourself to be racially superior. We looked at the book of Ephesians for that. Sixth, be prideful. We looked at the book of Philippians. Seventh, forget who you are in Christ and adhere to false doctrines. We looked at the book of Colossians for that. Number eight, blame God for your problems. Uh, James 1, 4, with the result that your anger becomes unchecked. And then ninth, walk in darkness, which we said was equivalent in context to hating your brother. Walking in darkness in context, hating your brother, 1 John. So, David, despite my best efforts, this church is still intact. I have not managed to divide it yet. Thank you. So, number 10, preach ineffectively while your boss is on vacation. (laughs) Thereby getting yourself fired and splitting the church of God. No, seriously. Number 10, uh, you want to write this in there. Play favorites and show partiality. Play favorites, show partiality. We're looking at James 5. We're also looking at 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Let's just say this. There's no two ways about it. The early church was prone to favor the rich over the poor. Uh, Those who had less material goods in the early church were simply neglected. They were overlooked. Uh, The church played favorites to the wealthy. I think that was the motivation behind Ananias and Sapphira, even selling off their property, wanting to look better in the midst of the congregation to give themselves a little higher estimation uh, for the brethren. Uh, James tips his hand to this. I'm going to have you turn to the book of James. Uh, We'll just kind of skim this real quick. But uh, James tips his hand in chapter one, verse 22 He says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Well, what does it mean to be a doer of the word? What is pure religion? Well, then he answers that question in 127. Pure and undefiled religion is caring for the orphans and the widows. The opposite of that, you could say, would be impure and defiled religion is to neglect them. Which is exactly what was happening in the church. Uh, to take advantage of them, to neglect them, to um, to practice impure and defiled religion against those whom God finds precious in his sight. So James illustration couldn't be more vivid in chapter two, verses one through ten. And we'll just go ahead and read that. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, this point in particular is what he's talking about, he has become guilty of all. If you favor the poor or the, the rich over the poor and show partiality based on a person's external situation, you're judging improperly and you are sinning by committing partiality, playing favorites. Let me just drive this point home a little bit. Imagine if a homeless guy were to walk in those back doors and sit down in one of the pews. What would you do? Would we call the police on him? Would we have him removed? Or would we welcome him into the fellowship and show him the finest seat in the house? That's what James Point is saying. Uh, He's saying we play favorites. We do. A person's external appearance, they come to church looking nice, wearing a nice suit, we treat them nice. But if a poor guy came in and he even says in dirty clothes, and you tell him you sit over there in the corner, or better yet, come down here and you can be my footstool, haven't you shown partiality? Haven't you insulted this guy? And this is the theme of the book, too. This is one of the big themes of the book. If you look at chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 6. He says, Come now, you rich. Uh, Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you. And will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Uh, He goes on to say um, that, uh, verse 5, You've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of one and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. He's addressing the rich people and he's saying, You're taking advantage of the poor people and making yourself rich in the process. Um, Just a reminder, you know, the church at this time was undergoing persecution, it's more than likely that the leadership of the church or men in the congregations were, were perhaps being put to death, leaving the widows and the orphans behind. But to neglect those widows and the orphans, they are widows indeed, as the Scripture says. They may have been um, forced into that situation and to judge wrongly, to not know what their situation is, but just to neglect them because they don't have earthly possessions is a sin. The church was showing partiality. They were, they were neglecting. They were treating them unfairly. They were playing favorites with the wealthier believers and treating the poor like dirt. Uh, let me just say that that is what chapter 5, the context leading into chapter 5 about the brethren becoming sick and calling upon the elders and having them place hands on them to heal them, the sickness that is taking place there is God's temporal judgment, His judgment in time and space upon those who are committing this sin of of partiality against the poor. God's judging them for it, and so many of them are becoming sick and dying off. The only way to change the situation was to come before the elders, to call upon the elders to come, and to pray over them and to repent of the sins and turn from them, and perhaps God would then restore them to health. 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to flip over there, this is the same situation taking place. Uh, The poor were being overlooked in the celebration of the ordinance of the Lord's table. He says in verse 22, What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God? There's that expression, church of God again. 
Remember what we said? It's God's church. And shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you, he says. Verse 27, the unworthy manner that's being talked about here is is, um, showing partiality to the rich and being hurtful towards the poor in the congregation. So because of this, many in the congregation, verse 30, you'll see, for this reason... Because of your treatment of the poor among you, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Just like in James 5. God's temporal judgment upon the congregations showing partiality. You could say that this is God administering church discipline. This is divine church discipline. And um, this is a hard way to split a church. People dying instead of leaving. (laughs) Uh, But that's how God dealt with it in the early church. The unity was so fragile then, God was making an example out of these people because he wanted to establish the unity of his church so that it would last indefinitely. You know, um, Deuteronomy 10, you don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 19 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and mighty, uh, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. And then listen to what it says after this. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So, he says, verse 19, show your love for the alien, for you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. Because this is true of God, because this is part of God's nature, if you will, God does not show partiality. He does not take a bribe. He demands the same thing from his church. It's not simply good advice. It's a command. God tells him, don't ever forget about your alien status in Egypt. Uh, You were just as much in need of my grace as as, uh, anybody else. Uh, You didn't buy my favor. I demonstrated my grace towards you out of my goodness. And so don't you dare not show grace to somebody else and do likewise. When you get to Acts chapter 10, you can turn there if you want. Verse 34, uh, this is Acts 10 is the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. And Peter uh, has this vision and he has this vision with this sheet coming down out of heaven with the meat on it. I call it the sheet with the meat. And um, at the end of that vision, if you look at it very closely, um, Uh, Verse 28, uh, Peter begins to preach to the Gentiles and he says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unclean or unholy. He's not talking about the food. He's not talking about the food being unclean. The vision was about the men being unclean and God is not partial Jews and Gentiles, both are entitled to the same grace. Romans 2.11, you don't have to turn there, but Paul says there is no partiality with God. In other words, Paul is saying that all are guilty before a holy God. 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias 
doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Partial in the Greek, literally, FYI, means an acceptor of a face, uh, a respecter of persons, uh, personal favoritism on the outside. One uh, author I wrote said, the fault of one who, when called on to give judgment, has respect of the outward circumstances of a man and not to their intrinsic merits, and so prefers as the more worthy one who is rich, high-born, or powerful to another who does not have these qualities. That's the definition of partiality. You know, let's face it. Many times we are like Job's counselors. Somebody comes in and we say, you know, you must have sinned somehow to deserve this situation in life, right? You must have been a poor steward. You must have done something wrong. They must have done something to deserve this. They don't have any money because of something they've done. They must be sinners and they must deserve their situation. But we can't judge a person's situation. We don't have all the facts. We can't show partiality. It's prejudging and it's abhorrent to God. Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It's free. The gospel is free. Right? Come, you who have no money. So how dare we be partial to those who have nothing? God has put them there for a reason. You know, when my father was a boy, I'll just finish this one with this. When my father was a boy, he had to move in with his uh, in-laws for a time. And... um, I guess they'd be my great-grandparents. Um, they did not like my father's uh, wife. And so what they did was they were a wealthier family, and my, my grandmother came from a, the poor side of the tracks. Um, and so what they would do is they would uh, not let my father and his siblings eat with the rest of the family. They had to eat in the kitchen with the servants and they had to enter the house through the back door. And you know, my, my father told me this story when he was dying of all the things my father could have remembered to tell me about. This was one of the most painful memories that he had growing up was that he was treated like a second class citizen because he had nothing. He didn't come from the right background. Showing personal favoritism towards the rich can result in nothing but hurt towards those who have not been materially blessed, and it will divide the church of God. If you show favoritism, if you play favorites, you will split the church of God between the haves and the have-nots. And the church of God, the dwelling place of the Spirit, will be divided. I'm going to pick up the pace here. Secondly, install false teachers. This is number 11. Install false teachers in the leadership. Underneath that, you could write in lack biblical discernment. I'm looking at 2 Peter 2, and I'm looking at Jude here. You know, Peter said that in the same way false prophets had arisen among the nation of Israel, uh, so too false teachers would arise among the church. You could look at Acts 20, 28 through 30 for this. Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders as well. 
Jude said that these spiritual terrorists, if you will, these uh, sleeper cells were going to sneak into the church and, and then they would be activated and that they would rip the church apart from the inside out. And um, they had been placed strategically in the church by the evil one. And uh, Jude says uh, they're out to destroy the church. If you if you look at the two books together, I won't have you flip back and forth just for the sake of time, but you can write down the references the two books together kind of give you a description of what these false teachers look like. Uh, first, they advocate, uh, there's five things I want to show you here. They, they advocate sensuality. Second uh, Peter 2, 2, 13, 14, 18, 19, and Jude 8. They're arrogant. They're arrogant. Second Peter 2, 18, Jude 16. They are greedy for gain. 2 Peter 2:14, Jude 16. They blaspheme angelic beings, 2 Peter 2:10 and Jude 8. Did you spit in this day? Okay. Number 5, they are marked out for destruction, Peter says, 2 Peter 2:1 through 3, 9 and 12, and you could also write uh, 2 Peter 3, they, uh, they twist the Scriptures. They malign the Scriptures. It's an inside job. You could say it that way. They get into the church and from the inside they rip it apart. Uh, Jude says uh, in verse 19 that these are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly minded. They're natural, in other words, uh, and, and devoid. They don't have the Spirit. Uh, to be sure... I think the church today can identify with this. The church has been overrun with false teachers. Uh, look again at the qualities. They're, they're sensual, they're arrogant, they're greedy, and they revile angelic beings. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Benny Hinn, doesn't it? Doesn't he bind Satan all day long? Doesn't he revile angelic beings? Doesn't he, give me money, give me money, give me more, more, more. He wears $1,000 suits. I mean, it's a televangelist. And why did I put lack biblical discernment in here? False teachers divide congregations, yes, but the churches are the ones that put them into leadership. By and large, the church has lost her discernment and, and really overlooks much when they put men into leadership. The sin of the individual in the church, not exercising discernment, affects the entire congregation, the, the entire body. Individuals in the church have a responsibility to be discerning with who they put into leadership. The question you ought to be asking yourself, is he a man of the word? Is he somebody that can handle the word? Not, does he look like a TV weatherman? Is he, is he appealing? Does he dress in nice suits? Right? You know, it just grieves me to no end what some folks will watch on television or what they'll accept as biblical teaching, the stuff that they'll read, uh, what they put in their minds. They wouldn't necessarily put them in the pulpit, but they'll put them in their mind constantly by listening to them. And then they will take what they learn from these people and it'll influence them and then they'll bring it to the congregations. Just that subtle influence, folks, uh, can be a source of division. The television is littered with these guys. 
And some of the most popular books on the Christian um, top ten lists now are these people. Uh, I looked through a Christian book distributors catalog and three of the top ten are people I would consider false teachers. Joyce Myers. How many of you have heard of Joyce Myers? Do you know what she teaches? That, that Jesus took on the nature of Satan on, on the cross because he had to become sin. So he took on the nature of Satan. When he died, he went to hell. And after three days, God rescued him from hell after he had suffered death for us. So Jesus became the first born again man. Does that sound right to you? Please say no. It is not right, beloved. Jesus did not atone for our sins in hell. He atoned for them on the cross. Joel Osteen. I could spend hours on this one. Joel Osteen, when he was interviewed on Larry King, was asked, so does a person have to believe in Jesus Christ to go to heaven? Largest church in North America, 30,000 members. And his answer was, I don't really want to say what, what could get somebody into heaven or not. You know, I don't, I don't want to say it. God's going to look at their heart and he's going to look at their sincerity. And he knows, but I don't want to judge that. Is that what the scriptures say? The largest church in North America. They call him the pastor of America. He's a motivational speaker. That's what he is. He's not a pastor. T.D. Jakes. I don't have time, but he deni- he's got 30,000 people in his church too, but he denies the Trinity. He denies the essential doctrines of the Trinity. And these books are on the bestsellers list on Christian websites. We need to have discernment when it comes to installing leadership. You don't want a motivational speaker. You want someone who will speak for God. You want somebody who will explain this book to you, not twist it and manipulate it for their own sordid gain. Nothing will rip a church apart quicker than a false teacher and the influence which they have over the members of the congregation. So if you want to split a church, then by all means, come up short in the area of biblical discernment and put a guy in the pulpit who twists and manipulates the scriptures to his own destruction and the church's. Allow yourself to be influenced by false teachings, writings, and doctrines in books and on television. This is an excellent way to split a church. Finally, refuse to repent or forgive. Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. I want to return to those texts. I know we've gone over them before, but I I really need to address this issue. We've already looked at the structure of both of these books, but one of the main points Paul makes in each of these books for maintaining the unity of the church is the need for repentance and forgiveness. We have to keep... uh, Somebody once said, you go into a marriage with your eyes wide open and once you're in, you keep them half closed. We have to be willing to overlook each other's faults, folks. We've got to be able to um, repent of our sin and not only ask for forgiveness, but be willing to grant forgiveness. Uh, And I'm not talking about saying, I'm sorry. I'm talking about saying, I forgive you. Or will you forgive me? Um, 
Ephesians 4.22, I'll just have you flip there if you are not there already. Ephesians 4.22, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, we talked about this. Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about how you came to be in Christ, right? Um, And now, as a believer, this is how you walk worthy. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is how you maintain or are diligent to preserve the unity of the church, and that is by your continual repentance from sinful patterns. Uh, We see in verse 25, lay aside falsehood. And do just the opposite. Renew your mind with the scriptures and speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Um, I will just say, verse 28, you who steal, don't steal anymore, but rather work hard. Uh, Do just the opposite. Renew your mind with the scriptures so that you have the means to give to others. That's what real repentance looks like. Um, Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. And do just the opposite of that. Put on kindness, put on forgiveness, put on tender heartedness towards each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Repentance and forgiveness is the key to undoing the destruction of anger and and the like. Colossians chapter 3, turn to the right. Colossians chapter 3. Again, chapter 1, this is who Christ is and what Christ has done. Chapter 2, this is who you are in Christ. Chapter 3, this is how you're supposed to now live as somebody who's in Christ, right? So chapter 3, verses 5 through 12, consider your members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, by the way. Uh, this normal repentance would be take off the old filthy, dirty garments Renew your mind, put on the clean garments. But here he's saying, don't even do that. Just consider yourself dead to immorality. Um, Impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked. You once walked. Not anymore. Uh, when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. There it is. You put it off. Verse 10, you put on the new self. And verse 12, you put on the right behaviors. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That's an ellipsis. You've got to supply the verb at the end. What, what is it? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive. That's what he's saying. It it parallels Ephesians 4 nicely. So if we don't truly turn from our sin issues and renew our minds with the word of God and turn toward godly behaviors, it's not enough just to stop doing the wrong things. You've got to do the right things in their place. You've got to renew your mind with the scriptures and know what the right thing to do is. It's an ongoing process of death to self. John the Baptist said he must increase and I must decrease.
This idea of this false notion of repentance that is swirling around in the church today, it just grieves me. I mean, this idea that you walk an aisle once, you say a sinner's prayer, and and you have your fire insurance now. Uh, Beloved, repentance is an ongoing, continual process that never ends in the Christian life. It's not a one-time thing. We need to repent every day of our pride, our selfishness, our anger, our rebellion. And then we need to be forgiving towards one another. We need to forgive each other's shortcomings. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. I just want to point something out. You know, we know Matthew 18. It's, it's famous for the church discipline passage, 12 to 18. Uh, 15 to 18. 12 leads into it. But the end of the chapter, uh, verses 23 to 35, this is the parable of the unmerciful servant who was forgiven much and then he turned around and refused to give his brother. That came right on the heels of church discipline. So, So even if... You know, something happens to where the church needs to discipline a person. The rest of the church needs to come along and be what? Forgiving. We need to forgive each other. We need to keep short accounts. How does this relate to the unity? Well, if we don't learn to actively forgive one another when we're wronged, if we harbor bitterness, if we harbor resentment, if we harbor clamor or anger, it will eventually explode out. You can't sit on it that long. It will either corrode you on the inside or it'll destroy the church. Anger is destructive. Learn to forgive. Learn to ask for forgiveness. Learn to repent. Again, it's just the, it's the same thing I've been saying all along. It's the, it's the individual responsibility of the believer and his relationship to a holy God But it takes place in the context of a community of believers. You're responsible for the entire body, not just yourself. That's what the apostles are saying. So repentance and forgiveness are key to the maintenance of the unity of the church of God. Unless you want to split the church of God. If you really want to, it's a great way. Harbor bitterness, harbor anger, harbor resentment. Refuse to forgive people and you will split the church. So, let me just finish up. I've run over four minutes. I will finish here. Uh, You know, we've seen 12 methods. In case you didn't get the last three, we'll just repeat those. Play favorites, show partiality. Install false teachers into leadership and lack biblical discernment. Number 12, refuse to repent or forgive. And as I said at the start, it is my hope that you will not practice any of these methods, but instead that you will do some self-examination, that you might walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, that you would build up the unity of God's church, that you would be diligent to preserve the unity of God's church, which he purchased with the blood of his son. May I also just say you've been great about this series. I know it, it seems like it's a little bit uh, heavy at times, but uh, by God's grace, we don't we don't deal with this unity in this church at this point. Uh, God has been 
gracious to preserve the unity of, of this church. And I trust you all are encouraged here in this fellowship by your love one for another. And I trust that this message will only just stimulate, your, stimulate you to a deeper love for one another. I'm really not wanting you to split the church. Let's pray. Our Father, I do thank you for these three weeks that we've had to look at these 12 ways to split a church. Our, our Father, I know, is not the desire of any of us to be a lightning rod for division. And even, Father, uh, unintentionally, though, we can be. I pray that we would do some self-examination from this series, that we would look into our own hearts, our Father, and see where there may be a lack of forgiveness, bitterness, anger, wrath, building up in our hearts. Lord, help us to keep short accounts with one another. If we've offended somebody, help us to go and have the courage to ask for forgiveness. My Father, if somebody comes to us who has sinned, help us to have the uh, strength of character to be forgiving. Lord, may we do all things uh, the same way Christ has done for us. May we be forgiving toward one another as Christ has been forgiving towards us. And our Father, may it never be that we should be the lightning rod for division in your church. Is Christ divided? May it never be. Lord, may you glorify yourself in the church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.